I wanted to answer a question from a correct an answer I gave last week. Saranya asked me about Krishna being on the altar, um, as opposed to the way SRF does it with Krishna's specific picture, and Ananda doesn't have that. And I had just made the statement that in India it was suggested, and actually just as it happened, I came across the specific information. When uh, Dayamata came to India about a year after Swami did, maybe 1959, he met, she met a man, uh, Shyam Sham Dubey, I think his name was. Dubey may have been his first or his last name, I'm not remembering. But, uh, no, he became Swami Shamananda, that's what it was. But he was, his first name was Dubey. And uh, it was he who suggested that uh, SRF wouldn't really be able to get off the ground unless Krishna was on the altar because Jesus was in the center. And Dayamata put a lot of faith in his point of view and in fact gave him a lot of authority over SRF in India after she left India. It was not a a positive thing for Swami Kriyananda. They didn't see eye to eye on many issues, Um, many issues. Swami remarked in these notes that I was reading that for the time he was there before Dayamata arrived, when he was drawing literally thousands of people, he had the altar with Jesus in the middle and he never prayed separately to Krishna. He did it just the way Master did. And he was very successful. He never had any difficulty with it. So when the suggestion was made, Swami didn't go along with it, but Dayamata was put a lot of faith in him because he was Indian. And Swami's experience there was less important to her. So that was actually the details of how it happened. I was more vague about it that someone suggested. When they changed Yogananda's signature and spelled it, put the extra A into Paramahansa, par instead of Paramahansa. That was a, a suggestion made by Sanskrit scholars. But the idea of Krishna on the altar was just the opinion of this one man that she met there and felt had a lot to say. So, and I'd, I'd never, I hadn't remembered Swami's comment that, that he was there. I, maybe it was a year and a half, maybe even two years. I don't, I don't have a clear picture. Uh, at the moment. He was only in India for four years and she was there for one, somewhere in it. But she came long enough after he was there that he was very well established when she came. And the success of her visit was because of his success prior to her visit, that he had so many people interested, all of which he did without Krishna's picture being on the altar. He just said simply it never came up. I mean, no one ever said anything to him about it. They took him just as he was and Swami as he was. And that was, he was sufficient testimony for his own teaching. I'm glad she asked the question. It was a pure coincidence that I read that note later, but uh, I wanted to make it clear. Okay, any other questions or comments about anything before we go forward? Number 292. It's amazing how things are changed with good intention. You know, people don't mean to be evil, but you just have an idea in your head and you think it's a good idea. I know many times over the years with Swamiji when he was doing different things, I just had ideas. And a lot of them were just not good. But I just would present them. And uh, sometimes he would kind of try to go along with me so as not to crush my spirit. But on rare occasions, on very rare occasions, he would say something like, I've had more experience than you, you know, such as maybe you don't know what you're talking about. But, but he would, wouldn't put person down like that. He would just give you the opportunity to consider 
where one's ideas are coming from. I mean, that's, it's, it's very tricky because we just, we have lots of thoughts and some of them are elevated and um, inspired and some of them are just thoughts. And many of them are just thoughts based on what we've always thought. <laughs> I was talking to someone recently just about, about something to do with modern culture, really, and how, how it relates to what Ananda is doing or should be doing. And uh, I guess that was the word sentimental that I was talking about a lot last week, I believe. Just the difference between a really well-thought-out, inspired idea and something that is just what we've always thought. <laughs> and uh, only intuition can tell the difference. But one should be careful when one is advocating very strongly to just pause for a moment and just ask yourself, where does this idea come from? In Swamiji's company, that fact would come up really often. Um, and I was, I was aware in the conversation I was having recently that, you know, it's, it's a tricky business unless you have a real clear pulse of, of divine awareness or someone whose wisdom you can really trust against whom you can bounce off your ideas. Even your peers are helpful. You know, just does this make any sense? And why would it be true? It's, it's very important to cultivate that clarity of mind. Otherwise, we just caught, get caught up in our feelings and we just think all kinds of things are true. And they aren't, or they aren't necessarily necessary. So anyway, there you have it. But over the course of centuries, that's why the avatars reincarnate. Because over and over again, people just make a hash of their teachings. And, and many of those people are quite sincere in what they're doing. It's not like they're trying to mess it up, but they just do it, they bring it to what they understand. They make it more acceptable to the masses or they feel will serve the institution. There was the point at which the 500-something when the Council of Constantinople took references to reincarnation out of the New Testament because they thought that the church would be able to influence people more and have more... Um, positive impact in their lives if people thought that this was it and they had to um, get, their, get it together. The idea that they could just reincarnate and go somewhere else was so disruptive to the idea of a centralized church with authority over their spiritual lives that they changed the scripture to match their ideas. Whether it was nefarious or just ignorant, it's hard to say. But what a thing to do, obviously. There's a certain degree of nefariousness to it to make such a fundamental change. But you always have to just, you just stop for a minute and ask when you hear things, hmm, you know, I wonder if that's true and why would it be true? Swamiji basically on a very high level taught us to think. Uh, I was saying to friends that one of the reasons I always enjoyed his company so much is that you just, you just couldn't be mentally asleep you, you know, you couldn't just sort of say any fool thing that came into your head. He wouldn't always, he was not argumentative at all. And he, he wouldn't contradict you just for the sake of contradicting you, nor would he even always correct you. But he would, he, he, his silences were eloquent. And, and when ideas that you would offer with so much enthusiasm would just kind of sit there without much of a response, and you sort of look over at him and he would, you know, be staring off into the middle distance. You, you kind of begin to suspect that maybe 
you weren't quite as astute as you thought you were, you'd have to you know, spend a little time thinking it through. And it wasn't always obvious. If you asked him sincerely, he would always answer. If you asked him for the sake of prove me wrong, why bother? I mean, he, he, he knew that no one can be argued into realization. You know, you can, if a person has a strong mind and wants to be clear-minded in their thoughts, you can be guided into a better understanding. But if you just want to argue, then he, he I, I can't remember him ever arguing. You know, the way people do, where they make the point stronger and stronger and then find a, kind of finally get their point across. If that was the tone of the conversation, he just wouldn't engage because he wasn't interested in winning his points. He was interested in enlightening us. And it, it, that was not the way to enlighten people. As he said once when he gave a talk to a, at some university, of some very high-level university, and he said it was one of the more interesting lectures he gave or discussions he had because the people were so intelligent, their questions were extremely intelligent, and many of them were different than he'd been asked before. But he realized when it was over, they were all just going to go home and, and, as he put it, lick their intellectual wounds and come back tomorrow with new arguments. I mean, it was a, an end in itself for them. It wasn't a quest for wisdom. It was a discussion about points of view. And that simply wasn't why he was here. You know, that was, that was why I lasted. I actually lasted about two weeks at college, even though I didn't um, leave until the end of the first year. But in the first two weeks, in some of the classes that I, you know, philosophical classes, where I thought we were going to have a discussion about, about truth, really, about how to live, we actually were going to have arguments about different points of view without ever even trying to discern a greater reality. And it, it actually shocked me. I just never thought that that's what people would consider education. So I, I, I just mentally dropped out, even though I continued to live there. And would periodically engage, but mostly it was just, I just couldn't see any point in it. I think many, 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 many incarnations of that was enough. You know, I didn't need it this time. Anyway, so here we are. Number 292. Norman told me of a vision he'd had in which he saw himself with the Master in Lemuria 80,000 years ago. Was the vision true? I, of course, had no way of knowing and was only mildly interested in the actual existence of Lemuria. What that vision did for me was raise another, to me, more pressing issue Master, I said, have I been your disciple for thousands of years? The very thought that it could take so long to find God appalled me. I was I, reading this this evening, I was thinking of Swamiji being such an eager 22-year-old, and he was there, and he you know, just a, attacked the spiritual path with so much vigor and his determination to meditate, and then suddenly to think he was on a trajectory that you know, started 80,000 years ago. You can imagine how incredibly disheartening that was to him. Master said he loved the spirit of America. He said in India they know that finding God is very, very difficult. So they, there's an inclination to think, well, you know, some incarnation I'll get to it. For now I'll just live a good life. He said Americans think that we can do everything now. So they, he, he talks to them about realizing God and Americans say, sure, we can do it. 
because that's just the way we approach it. Master found that very refreshing. And that was certainly Swami's way. So when Swami said, have I been your disciple for thousands of years? Master replied, it has been a long time. That's all I'll say. (laughs) You know, of course, you can hear him saying that with a little bit of an affectionate smile. I'm just not going to, I'm not going to give you all that history. And then Swami asked, does it always take so long? I hope to learn that at least I wasn't the only laggard. (laughs) Oh, yes, the master replied offhandedly. Desires for name, fame, and the rest of them take people away again and again, the rest of those desires. Name, fame, and everything. And, and, what, and what, I thought, have all those desires accomplished? Life ends so very soon, and then? That's quite a story, isn't it? You know, he doesn't answer the question of Lemuria. It's been a long time, that's all I'll say. You know, part of it is, Swamiji once said to me, he said it to me when I was the only one in the room, and he said it rather casually, but of course I've never forgotten. In his dome, the way it is now at Crystal Hermitage, there's a, a, high, a higher level, and then you go all the way down to the main living room, and there's a piano up. The grand piano is up there. In the original dome, when the whole house was one room, that raised area was a kitchen. And over by the door, there was a, a half wall, and the sink was there, and you wash dishes there. And Then Swami, there was a little sort of a ledge on the other side of the counter, and Sometimes when you were washing dishes every so often, Swami would sort of stand on the other side of the ledge. Sometimes he'd kind of lean on the ledge. And it was one of those times, and it was late at night, and I was finishing the dinner dishes before going home, and he was just about to go off to his meditation room. And just in my memory, there was absolutely no introduction or context. But he just leaned across there while I'm washing the dishes and said, Master talked about realizing God in one lifetime, but really... How many people even do Kriya correctly? Well, good night. <laughs> I mean, it's just like, wow. And I was the only one there, so that was a message for me, apparently. <laughs> but I've, I've reflected on it many, many times. I, I think it was a personal message for me because I tended to become stressed very easily about a lot of things. And so I think he was trying to lighten me up a little bit. But I think it was also telling the truth. I mean, I don't know how many people do Kriya correctly. That's not for me to say. And I don't know why he, he tossed that one into it. But the point was, we've really gotten ourselves into something here. And don't think it's just a question of, oh, just a couple more days and I'll just push my way through it. I mean, it's that, I've often in this class talked about that. That's a very fine line. Here's the reason behind it which is this is a long-distance race. And, and the, if it's, it's not that we shouldn't be determined, because on other occasions, and other people will easily quote this to you, Swami said, well, you should at least become a Jivan Mukta in this life. I mean, he said that. You know, you should, you should become a Jivan Mukta. Why not? You know, you can do that, at least. If you can't become completely free, at least break the hold your ego has on you, and then all you have left is what's behind you instead of creating more. He said that equally casually. But the greatest difficulty on the spiritual path, or or one of the greatest difficulties on the spiritual path, is that people become discouraged. And, And when you become discouraged, 
that's when you really lose a lot of incarnations. When you just think, you know, I can't really do this, this is too hard. And one of the reasons people become discouraged is because they pour all their effort out, you know, they strain themselves for a short period of time and they don't have sustaining power because they've just burned themselves out too fast. Swami talked about it in a very small way, but in the path, I believe he mentions this, where they were trying to um, become, they, they were trying to the Tibetan practice of tumo, which is where you are, uh, generate heat, I believe, within you. And, you know, the Tibetans got good at it because there was so much cold there. You know, but they, uh, many Tibetan yogis could sleep outside in the snow and be perfectly warm because they, they had developed the yogic technique of just self-generating heat. It's just a power, apparently, that you can have. And so the young monk, Swami, writes in the path how they would take off their shirts and ride in the open back of the truck and just feel the cold wind and try to be immune to the cold. So Swami said he started the practice of taking cold showers. And he said, but he just pushed it too far. He said, and he, got, he, he became so chilled, I think he said it took him weeks or months to get warm again. So he, he understood how you can push yourself with willpower, but it, it doesn't in the end actually help you. And, and so staying power is much more important than sprinting power. Because it's, it is a long haul, and that's what he wanted us to know. I presume that's the reason Swami said it, or merely because it was so shockingly amusing, he just wanted me to hear it. I really don't know. Um, but I have considered it many, many times. It just takes time. And why? And there's also a certain, it's a balancing point, egoic presumption. You know, that's, that's how I've always felt about it. I just feel that I don't, I, I, I don't have enough signs that tells me I'm at the end of my incarnations for me to actually grasp that as self-identity. I have lots of signs that I have separated myself enormously from the ways of the world. And that's enough. You know, I, I, I work more on, on continually separating myself from the forces of delusion, and as long as I, as I keep doing that, then the other side of it is going to just take care of itself. I don't mean I'm negative in my spiritual approach, but you understand. I try to do that which feels accessible to me. And that's partly to balance a temperament that can become discouraged. Yeah. Yes. No. Absolutely certain that um, it's a mistake to think that you can push your way through it by spreading all the way, using your will to do so. It's a little bit of a razor's edge as well because will is so important on the path. So. Definitely. Yes, of course it's true. That's why I'm trying to talk about balance. But Swami too, am I the only laggard? Then, I mean, then the other part of this is desire for name, fame, and all of them, and the rest of them, is how he puts it, the rest of the classic desires. Swami said in another place, you know, it was interesting that Master said name and fame to him because Swamiji said of all the things in this world, it is, you know, it's the least, it never has meant anything to him. In, you know, in his recent memory, he's had, he's had so much of it, in essence, over lifetimes that it just means nothing. He found it somewhat encouraging that Master only referred to things that he didn't have an attraction to. But Swami was a little bit concerned because when Master wanted him 
to lecture in public and be a minister. And Swami was reluctant. And then later, uh, one of the other ministers left because he became egoic. Swamiji said to Master, that's why I don't want to lecture. You know, I don't want to put myself in harm's way. And that was when Master said to him very seriously, as Swami said, you will never fall because of ego in this, in this respect. I mean, that's quite a statement. Yeah, you will never fall because of ego. That's a statement of an extraordinary level of freedom. Because how can you say never unless, there, unless something is really behind you on a very high level? You know, I certainly wouldn't. I mean, that just... I could easily fall because of ego, name, fame, and all the rest of them. <laughs> but it, it's also, you, you have to just be kind to yourself and you have to be kind to the people around you. It's just not that easy. Swami made the comment once that, you know, not everyone has lifelong spiritual karma. Many people are just, they, they follow the spiritual path seriously and very seriously for a time, but then that force isn't strong enough to sustain them. That's always sort of scary because it seems sort of passive and it isn't really. But it's more like that's how the masters work with people is they understand it's been a long time. And they understand that you can't, you can't force a person to enlightenment. You can't argue them into enlightenment. But you can't bully them into enlightenment. But oftentimes we try to bully ourselves into enlightenment. That's um, you know, we, we, we put ourselves at war with ourselves, which is not a good idea. Swami himself talking about different desires he had. He, 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 the biggest challenge, the biggest karma of his life that he had to face was the unrelenting opposition of his guru bhais that left him um, in a state of extreme isolation and loneliness just because the people, I mean, because he was 36, but he was 22 when he came to SRF, and he was 36 when he was expelled. And, and he, you know, he was so thrilled to find his family, and he was very close with many of those people. And of course, he shared with him, with them, the greatest experience of his life, which was being with Master. And that, that bond could not be replicated by anyone else. There was no one else who had sat in the same room and, and been with Master and shared those experiences. So it, it created a great um, void in his heart. Now let me think what, how I was, what I was going with that. Oh, but he said, you know, at first he just tried to, well, I, he didn't use the word bully, but that's the right word, just pound it out of himself. And then he just said, quite simply, that doesn't work. You know, he, he had to out, outlast it. And outlast it by um, expansive service and devotion. Because by expansive service and devotion, you have a... a, a and, and by devotion, I mean meditation also. But, but devotion, meditation becomes powerful as a transforming force when there's devotion because it's, 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 it's finding a higher experience of love that w which brings with it a deep experience of joy that causes all other desires to wither. 
because as long as something as long as something looks attractive to you, you'll still want it. And it will look attractive to you as long as it is a positive experience or is more positive than other experiences. But once you have a better experience, you don't, you don't have to discipline yourself anymore. So you don't, you don't, there's, no, there's discipline at the beginning, but at a certain point there's vairagya. And vairagya is just a disinclination. You don't have to strain not to desire to be famous or to be praised or whatever it might be. It, you just have a strong disinclination for it. I had a funny experience with the children. I, I sort of, with the children in our school, I, I can't quite, I, I don't really quite know what the right spot would be because the teachers are training the children to appreciate that which is done for them. And that's important. They have to learn gratitude and they have to learn to see that, you know, all this service is not theirs by right. You know, it's a generous offer on the part of people. And when I work on the costumes for the kids, I put in a lot of time. But, you know, it just became so tiresome to be applauded endlessly. And it, I mean, really, it just became annoying. And so I said, you know, please don't do that. I said, I do it for love. And then one of the teachers said, well, applauding is our way of expressing love. <laughs> But then I realized, of course, that that word, that sentence could have been misunderstood because it sounded like I'm doing it for your love. And I'm not doing it for your love. I'm doing it for the love of doing it, which is a wholly and entirely different thought. And then I got a little confused about what the children need versus what I wanted and all of that. But yeah, if we're doing it for the name and fame, that's the desire. That little thought in the back of your mind is, how is this going to be received? But there comes a point where it's just tiresome. I mean, I'm talking about a very small life experience. Um, I, I do find in my life that <clears throat> if I can be right in the things that I'm not real attached to, then that gives me an idea of how to be right when I'm more attached to it. Swamiji was able to teach me to cook over a weekend. He was able to awaken my intuition for cooking over a, a three-day weekend because I had, I had, uh, it, it, no part of me thought that it would make me a better, more important, more worthwhile person if I could cook well. It was, it was a non-value in my life. It was a problem because I was cooking for the whole community and they all had to eat it, it what I made, and which wasn't very tasty, and that was a problem. But I didn't feel it was important, whereas to be a writer which was what I was really struggling to be at that time. It just, it, my self-esteem was so twisted up in that capacity that it took me decades to work my way through that. You know, so if I'm making costumes for the children's play, there's, there's not a lot of need for me to be applauded for that. Writing, writing a book, there has been, I'll, I'll step back from it now because I don't feel it now, there has been a great need to be confirmed, you know, in the fact that, oh, this is good. Um, by the grace of God, I have a greater sense now that it simply is what it is. And, you know, it's nice, that, it's nice if people like it because that's the whole point. But the need to get, get it from the outside is very complicated. But those are how all the desires play. We have a desire for. We need to be confirmed from the outside. Or we, we just imagine, 
It's just, desires are so, just, it's such a subtle thing. It's, it's, it's not just a simple matter of saying, I don't want it, I'm not attached to it, I never want to do it again. It just comes out of levels of us that we don't even know. Because that's why, that's why Master said, before you can be God-realized, every desire has to be satisfied. Their Swami said, even the desire for an ice cream cone when you were a child? Master said, yes. And, and it sounds draconian and even like terribly unfair, but God-realization is absolute stillness at the point of rest at our own center. And desire, by definition, is the longing to move somewhere. So, so when it says it has to be satisfied, it has to be understood that there's nothing there. I don't need it. There's nothing there for me. And any, any shred of restlessness that's still in our heart is going to act against complete stillness. And desires are not, we don't transcend desires by somebody telling you, oh, that won't really make you happy. You know, it's just like, we, we understand it. And, and even more, Swami said, we learn something from having, he said, we learn something from having our desires frustrated. But we learn much more from having them fulfilled. Because if they're frustrated, we can always imagine, when you, when you renounce the world, because the world has renounced you, that's not quite the same. You know, nobody wants me, nobody wants to marry me, I'm just ugly, I'll be a nun. You know, that's not exactly the right reason. You might end up being, even being a good nun because nobody wants you and you're ugly. But, <laughs> but there's always a little bit in your heart, you know, that maybe somebody would want me and maybe I, won't, I don't have to always be considered so ugly. Somebody will think I'm beautiful. And there's the thought in your mind that if that happened, then it would be so lovely. And if that's anywhere, that if then it would be lovely, then you cannot be at absolute stillness. So, so it's, it, and, and the subtlety of that, you can, you can even know that it's not wholesome for you and therefore be at a point where you're not actually going to indulge in whatever it might be, but there's still a little piece of your heart that wishes you could, you know, or wishes it were different. And this is why we reincarnate, that reincarnation is really subtle. It's just that, that little bit of a, oh, if only, then... So desires for name, fame, and the rest of them <laughs> draw us away again and again. It, it's, it's important to have a lot of... I've said this before, but I, I never... I never... I always try to correct people if they say, I know it's stupid to feel this way. No, actually, it's not at all stupid to feel this way. You know, this is, there's a massive cosmic force called maya that is enticing you to feel that way. And there is nothing stupid about it. And it's not stupid inside yourself to feel that way. It's a, it's a sincere and a deep and a powerful yearning inside our own hearts for whatever it is that we feel. And, I mean, it's, it's, it's almost like... It, it, this is this strange balance. You have to be extremely stern with yourself, but sympathetically. Uh, otherwise... Um, too much harshness just takes you in the wrong direction. That's what Swami said. I tried, you know, being really harsh and stern and like, like the, you know, in the 
old uh, way as you whip yourself and throw yourself into the blackberry bushes and, you know, just all these different things. He said, but it just doesn't work. At the end of it, you're just right where you were before because it's not the opposite of the desire. The opposite of the desire is the experience of, of fulfillment that doesn't leave any room for that desire. So, when Swami was first came to Master and Master asked him, you know, of sex, power, and money, or sex, wine, and money, you know, of the three main delusions, what attracts you? And Swami said, you know, money's never attracted him and intoxicants have never attracted him, but there was a lingering desire for sex. And the way Swami explained it more subtly was for comfort, which is a very different, which is a, a more subtle force. But then Swami said, but I never see myself married. And then Swami was afraid. This is the very first meeting with Master. He said, uh, he said, maybe marriage is fine for other people, but I could never see it for myself. And Master said, it's not fine for very many people. <laughs> You know, of course, he's talking to monks. We've had lots of sections in this book. But, you know, there's... It, it, it's more like what people hope to gain from love, love, loving and being loved by other people can't be gained except from God. And then, of course, Master himself, you know, was a dear and loving friend to people. And it wasn't like it wasn't like human love is evil. In fact, the Master is quoted as saying, human love perfectly expressed is almost the same as divine love. And he even says, before you can realize God, you have to have, we have to win the love of one other human being, which is a very interesting statement. You have to have the capacity to really give and receive love before you can be divine in it. But... Um, it's not, it's not the form, it's the attitude most people bring to it. And they, they bring to it a hope and an expectation that isn't there. That doesn't mean it shouldn't be done or doesn't need to be done. In, in ho the holy science, the, the little bit of it that I've understood in reading it, he has that part about the pur purity of heart. And he talks about, and I, I'm not going to be able to present this accurately, so I'll just give you the gist as I remember, which I do remember accurately. He, he describes like three or four stages of the purification of the heart. And of the five or so that there are, the first two or three happen in the company of others. And he talked about that we are compelled into relationships with each other. And I, I believe that word compelled is what's actually in the book. If not, it's the sense of that. That's a very important word. Our, our destiny compels us to reach out for intimacy with other human beings. It doesn't necessarily mean marriage or sexuality at all. It just means relationship to other human beings because it's in, we, we can't, we're not capable of purifying the heart of, of, of selfish concepts of love except through actual experience where we rub against each other. You know, we bump against each other and, and my desires are thwarted by your reality and I have to learn. And that purifies the heart of wrong understandings of where fulfillment comes from. 
then at a certain point in our spiritual evolution, we don't need the presence of others to, to finish that process. And that's when a person can appropriately not merely become a monastic, which could come long before, but to become a hermit. Because one has sufficient, one has transcended the grosser aspects, so to speak, of, of needing the interaction. And so we're no longer compelled. So then a person will feel drawn to just simply step outside of, of human company. Because whatever is left, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Whatever is left for that purification process, he can do entirely and inwardly with God. So I've always, I've always kept that strongly in mind when people long to be married, to have children. Um, and, and, and in every way, that's the most compelling desire. And in our particular society at this time, because society is in such chaos, that compelling desire is so confusing and so difficult. It's, it's so disorderly in terms of being able to just, as people can in, more, in, in, other, in other civilizations when we're not transitioning from one yuga to another, where there's a stability and a predictability, people just marry and have families, and it happens in a context. Now it's, it's just chaos. So that particular compulsion is a cause of enormous uh, stress and friction with inside of people. But I always think about that. We're compelled. And, and the way Sri Yukteswar said it, he didn't say we're compelled by the ego. He just said we're compelled. We're just compelled because that is where we are spiritually in our progress. And we need to have these experiences. Our karma makes us do it. Because karma is why we incarnated. We have unlearned lessons. And those unlearned lessons are going to drive our destiny until it's over. I, I say this for how it applies to each of us individually, and also so we, when, we're, when we're talking to others, we can pick this up from the right string and be useful. I, I, there's a, a tremendous uh, inclination, an appalling inclination, among, uh, I, I've, I've encountered it several times now, among young women, to be very, you know, kind of globally against men. And it just, it's a... Uh, uh, I, I can't think of a worse response. It's just gonna, it just binds us all into just one more huge, confusing mess. Uh, we're, we're compelled to work this out with each other, one way or another, and to merely just categorize and, and reject. And I mean, I just one young woman just very casually made a very nasty remark about you know half the human race. It's just like. You know, there's as many lousy women in the world as there are lousy men. It's just like, there's no such thing as man or woman. There's just the soul, and some of them are more elevated and refined than others. It just doesn't make any difference. You can't... You, when you do that, all you do is polarize the situation and, and uh, more deeply bind yourself to your own delusion of being female. During the 10 years that I lived in the monastery, it was actually really interesting to me. This was my first, not quite 10 years at Ananda. But because I lived mostly among women and because the fact of being female um, was rarely um, activated by being in relationship to a man in 
a male-female sort of way because romance was off the table for a long time. And I realized how much of gender identification was the contrast. And when there was no contrast, the sense of my own identification, and I realized I saw that was one of the many benefits of monastic life, especially slightly cloistered, without the um, opposite being presented to me, I didn't, I didn't identify with it. I just lost track of gender. It was, it's, it was a lovely time and gives you a glimpse of a certain kind of freedom that once I got married, it, it just, I became a woman again because I, there was a man and I was always thinking of myself in that relationship. I mean, it wasn't... Um, uh, it, it, was, it was an upward-moving energy because of the marriage, but uh, nonetheless, it was interesting to me. And it was interesting to me how quickly it reasserted itself. How quickly it reasserted itself. And that I realized that my freedom was circumstantial rather than actually a freedom of consciousness. And which is one of the things that happens to us. But that's good because it, it, gives, you a, it gives you a glimpse. But it also tells you that, that to be able to even live in the right way through a deliberate act of will is different than vairagya, which is actually having a complete disinclination uh, for something. So it's, it's a, I find it an enjoyable, I find the whole thing about the spiritual path um, that's why I was saying to someone, I met Swami in 1969, and I was actually had already been on the spiritual path for a few years. So I've really been following the path of self-realization one way or another for about 50 years, which seems like a pretty long time. I started relatively young, but still that's a long time. But like today is as interesting as, as the first day, because you just see it all a little more subtle. Or, or, it's, or it's rather, let me... It's like, more, the further you get into it, the more, oh, that's what it really means. Oh, I thought I was doing that, but ah, now I see what it is. And, and if you're at ease with your own flow, which is not something that I have always been, I've become at ease with it, but it's been a hard-fought battle. That's why I'm so passionate about that particular part of it, that, that my... Dedication was not made greater by my stress. My dedication was in place, and my stress did not make it deeper. But if you're at ease about your process, then, it, then every time you realize that you're still standing at a distance, it becomes, it becomes uh, delightful rather than distressing. I mean, sometimes it's distressing too, it just is. Have I been your disciple for thousands of years? Are you kidding? After all this, you know, I'm still susceptible on such a uh, basic level. But well, there we are. Welcome to the human race. Okay, comments, thoughts, or questions? All right, number 293. Devi Mukherjee. There were two Devi Mukherjees. There's the Devi Mukherjee that whose house is in Calcutta, where we visit on pilgrimage. And then there was the Debbie Mukherjee, who uh, was also a Bengali from Calcutta, but he was a, a young monk at Mount Washington. So in, in the Ananda world, we have a Debbie Mukherjee who's someone else, 
So I always have to clarify that. Devi Mukherjee joked and laughed continuously. Life to him was one long succession of pranks and hilarity. He identified mentally, I suspected, with the pranks played by the boy Krishna. One day the master said to him, You have devotion, but you waste too much time joking and keeping the others rollicking. You must learn to be more serious. I know it, master, Debbie said remorsefully, but my habit is so strong. How can I change it without your blessing? Then parenthetically, Swami says, how common it is for devotees to try to shift the responsibility for changing themselves onto God's shoulders. Well, my blessings are there, replied the master. God's blessings are there. It is your blessings that are needed. <laughs> Swami always often told that story, so you've all heard it. Swami also says when he tells that story in India, before he finishes, and when, when Debbie says, you know, how can I change without your blessings? He says, all the Indians really love that, and they think that's the end of the story. <laughs> and they start, uh, uh, you know, ooing and eyeing and applauding at that point. And he said they're often quite chagrined when he finishes the story. So it's, it's a, there's, a lot, there's a lot on both sides of that. First, you start with the fact that um, Debbie Mukherjee was so outward. You know, when, when you're with people who are just compulsively outward, it's, uh, and, and when you like to be quieter, I'm sure, especially around Master, when people were trying to maintain a more inward connection with him, to have such a rajasic energy, I, I, you know, he was, I, I never met him, but I heard Swami, Swami saw him subsequently because he was a monk for just a short time and eventually went back to India. So he was just a very outward sort of person. And when you're with Master, you, you need to be inwardly listening. I was thinking recently about for several particular conversations I had with Swamiji, and I was remembering how much of the time, this one particular time, I brought up an issue um, that was a very subtle issue that I'd been contemplating for a long time. And I, I, I presented it to Swami, and I knew immediately, because it was, an, it was a... It was a continuation of something we'd, we'd often talked about. So in just a few words, he knew exactly what I was talking about, and we communicated. But other people, there were, there were several other in the room, and they, they just picked it up from a different string. And they started taking it this way and that way. And I made a small attempt to correct it, but I, it just wasn't possible. But I, I, I remember just looking at Swami, and we didn't exchange any words, but... We both knew that what they were talking about was not what we were talking about. But because I was thinking about that today, I realized how many times communication is not, and he's not the only one, but of course it was most expressed with him, is not verbal. It's, it's just an understanding, a glance, especially if you're really in tune with someone. And so if there's all this you know, talking and noise around you, it's much harder to, to be subtle because someone else is always... And I also remember on a couple of very unfortunate occasions, Swami brought up a serious topic and I made a joke. And then I deflected the energy. One particular one, I remember he, was, he really wanted to say something quite serious. And the part of the message was for me. And it was also for someone else in the room. And because I knew, I knew subconsciously that part of the message was for me, I immediately made a joke. And I, I can still feel how he just, what he could tell was, I wasn't going to hear him. But it was, you know, if you think about, oh God, 
kick myself. I wish I could go back on that one, rewind the tape. He could just tell that I, I just wasn't going to hear him. So he just went into silence and then brought up another subject. But you can imagine with a man in the monastery, whenever would Master would try to be subtle with him, he would just, and keep everyone else rollicking. That's what he said. Keep everyone else outwardly focused. And Master's there trying to transform their consciousness. And it, not just when Master's in the room, but all the time. But if he keeps going like this, how are they ever going to hear anything? So it was, and then the other side of it is Master saying, you have to put out the effort yourself. And you can't just sit there and expect me to do it for you. And this is where the willpower comes in. You just have to keep persevering and trying to find another. And of course, he did that because he enjoyed it. So he had to find greater joy in something else before he would stop. Otherwise, he would just keep doing it. Amazing. All right, let's take a moment's break and then we'll... Uh, I guess my question is about, you have said that Swami was a Jivan Mukta. Is, do I have it here again? Okay. So I think I might have answered it myself anyway, that uh, I was thinking, why did he have to go through so much stuff in his life? But even Master had to, didn't he? So maybe just to show us an example of how to be, what do you think? Well, you know, Someone, a friend of mine, called me and said, you know, basically, I've heard that you say sometimes that Swami was a Jivan Mukta. How would you know that? And I said, how would I know that? I don't know that. You would have to, it takes one to know one, as little children say to each other, you know. <laughs> so I don't have any, I, I'm not capable. My, I, I, it's, it, I, I've, I've reversed engineered it from various experiences. <laughs> I mean, he said that Master told him he would be completely free in this lifetime. So if you become completely free, that means you have to be a Jivan Mukta because that's how the progression goes. And he often told us that Master said that of him. So that's where I start. The second thing is, I mean, in this, I, I don't know how else to measure this, but I had, I had, you know, very close association with Swami over decades. I cannot imagine... A, a person living in a body being any freer than he was. It's just, I just don't know how you could be. I really don't know how you could be. I, I mean, if you, if you just sit in samadhi, but then I, that doesn't necessarily mean that you're free because who knows what you're doing inside. These are the things we learn from Patanjali's Yoga Sutras. You know, after you get to samadhi, there was still a third of the book left. So you, you, you're still working out a lot of karma. You're just working out the way you're working it out. Um, so, I, again, I go backwards from, we have this idea, and, and it's, this is one of these sentimental ideas, you see, because if a person is free, then they don't have any challenges or difficulties, and they never suffer, and their hearts never break, because that's what I want. I want pleasure and ease, and so that's why I'm here. So it, it, it must be pleasurable and easy. But who, I mean, look at Jesus. Look at Krishna. And you know, Yogananda's life was whitewashed a lot. It really, it really wasn't until the movie Awake came out, and which SRF approved of, that you really got much more of a picture that Master's life was filled with struggle and betrayal and heartbreak and disappointment and I'm going to Mexico and I don't know if I'm coming back. And writing from India, except for a few of you, I would just stay in India forever. I mean, there it, it was not... It wasn't just an effortless 
sail. It was a constant struggle. And Master was William the Conqueror and um, Ferdinand, Fernando in Spain. I mean, these were tough lifetimes in which a lot happens. And so the freedom is not that nothing happens. The freedom is how you respond to what happens. Because what would the lesson be if nothing happens? What can you learn from a saint where nothing happens? Really? It's like, well, and that, that makes you think, well, maybe, you know, someday. But ha- what does that have to do with me? I'm struggling to pay the bills and to get along and to raise my child and to deal with, you know, the sadistic person at work who's always out to get me. and Just all of these different things. So you see somebody go through that and you see the greatness is, oh, how you respond, how you persevere, how you pull yourself back. And Master and others have also said, you know, the, the avatar actually takes on the human life. And Master writes this about Jesus. What would it serve if Jesus was not really experiencing it? If he, was, if he wasn't really suffering, then what would he teach us about how to endure suffering? So it has to really happen. And after that, I'm so far beyond my own portfolio, I don't really know what I'm saying. But I know that I... Um, I wasn't as good a friend to Swamiji in the earlier years because I, I just didn't know how to cognize what his actual experience would be. So I, I, I flattened it, if you can say that. I just made it, I made it more two-dimensional because I didn't know how to deal with the fact that he was actually as tender-hearted as he was and that he actually experienced sorrow. I had to pretend that he didn't. That's the only way I can put it. And so as a consequence, I wasn't really as good a friend to him because he would be having, you know, real experiences in which it would be nice to have a friend understand what you're going through, and I, I just couldn't do it. It just didn't fit, it didn't fit my preconception of what he was supposed to be. And then very gradually I had to, I had to relate to who he actually was. And then I put together all the pieces. Well, if given all these things about who he is, if this is who he really is, then that must be what such a person is like, rather than he can't be that advanced because all these things are happening to him, therefore he isn't. But then I say to myself, how do you know? Like, where did I ever get that idea? That's one of those things where you just come in with these thoughts and you act as if, I mean, I watch people do it all the time. They're just, you know, they're just evaluating things, especially when Swami's life before the end of his life, when people were much more argumentative about whether or not and because of SRF's constant negativity about whether or not he was a true disciple, whether he was a really a realized soul, whether he was motivated by ego, whether he was really inspired. And they would just make all these conclusions. And I would think, on what basis? Other than it just it's convenient in your own head, but how could you possibly know? So I, I would go backwards and think, huh, Swamp Master said he would be liberated and these are the things that are happening to him. So, hmm, I guess this must be what happens. I guess this is really what it looks like when you're overcoming the last vestiges of karma. Or, what, or whatever that means to be a Jivan Mukta. That you, there's really no ego to which that karma can be attached. But there's ego left over from the past that has not yet been resolved. That the Jivan Mukta could dissolve at any moment if he chose, but he leaves it in place because it gives him a reason to keep coming back and helping people. Like, really? So, like, what is all that? 
So I would just look at him and think, hmm, maybe this is what it is. And Rajasi Janakananda, who was also, of, you know, beca- was liberated in this life, so therefore he must have been born as a Jivan Mukta. And he had this impossible wife who was mentally unwell and, and hated the spiritual path from whom he had to hide his spiritual life. You know, it's just, it, it, it is, he, he, Master had to pretend. One of the reasons that Rajasi wasn't with Master as much as he would have been is because his wife would become so upset. And much of Rajasi's earlier life was just working around this woman. And Master said, Rajasi got a wife like that because he needed to learn patience. But he, this man is fully liberated, and this is what he had to go through. So it, you think, you just, I just don't know where to put any of it. Yes? It, you know, it's obviously not simply what um, the Jivan Mukta, in, in spite of being a Jivan Mukta, has to, what it looks like for him. You observe his life, but it also happens to the avatar. It also happens to the avatar, yeah, exactly. Yeah, which is, so what do you say about that? I don't, I, I say very little. Yeah, me too. You know, one of the pictures that I've had in my mind about what an avatar is like is this comes from having visited our friend Jai Ram in prison, especially when he was at Folsom in maximum security. And uh, Folsom prison, the, you know, the, the original old building was this big old stone building. I mean, it was, you know, like your uh, movie set idea of what a prison would be. And especially the first times that I went there, it, you know, you go through a succession of, of locked doors. I mean, not locked doors, iron doors that go clang, you know, just like in the movie. So it's not like you're just walking through doors. It's like you're walking through these steel gates that open and then close behind you before the next one opens, you know, succession after succession of these until you finally get to the heart of the prison where, in this case, the men were incarcerated. And at that point, you go into what looks like a high school multi-purpose room and you just sit down and talk because there's so many layers between that point and, and there's armed guards around you who are, you know, in the prison or your visitor. Visiting always has to be facing the guard. It's just there's a lot. He can never turn his back to the guard. The guard always has to be able to see his hands and what he's doing. But all of this is going on. And then when the visitors leave, they go through a whole... I mean, when the prisoners go back through a whole series of this, and God knows what goes on on the other side of that. Okay, I, I draw all this very dramatic to say that the, the, the options for people in such situations are extremely limited, to put it mildly. You know, and you think, oh, I'll take him a book, I'll take him a box of candy, like, ha. You know, you don't just carry things into a prison and say, oh, look, here's a box of seized chocolates, you know. It just everything is, everything is controlled. And even when we would send uh, Jairam books when he was, at different times when he was in Folsom, you'd have to, you have to take the covers off. Because, you know, especially of a hardback, you couldn't send a hardback cover because who knows what could be put in it. So I'd buy Swami's books for him and then rip the covers off and just send him the insides because that's what you could send. Um, but uh, what I think is a person in prison, not Jai Ram, but he, had the, he has the karma to have been put in prison, uh, but he's not guilty of why he's in prison. But he still had the karma to be there else he wouldn't be there. 
So there's a reason, there's a karmic reason why he's in prison. I, I, I and others have gone into the prison. Now he's in a much lighter security. and You don't have to, it's not quite as uh, dramatic. He's still, you still, there's still locked doors, but it's not so dramatic. <clears throat> Coming to the end of it, ah yes. This life, incarnating into the human body and being on the material plane, is we are profoundly imprisoned. And, and there are locked doors after locked doors after locked doors. And, and you know, th- things can't just be brought and handed to us. Everything is filtered and controlled. And, you know, the armed guards are not external, but they're internal. I mean, the whole thing is, is the truth of the life situation. Every one of us who's here is here because of karmic compulsion that requires us to be imprisoned. And we have to figure out how to, how to serve our sentence and get out of here and not have to just always be in prison. The avatar has committed no crime and has no reason to be there, but he comes all the way in and he eats the same lousy food and he's subjected to the same conditions and he's subjected to the same guards, you know, which are the kar- kar- karmic laws. And he shows us how to live in that prison in such a way that you're not going to have to go back to it. But he's equally subjected to the conditions. Really? Yeah, but there's no guilt. There's no karma. I mean, when, when I sort of had that picture really strong in my head, then I understood, oh, I see. But he's here. You know, he's, I mean, in theory, he could walk out in the sense of he could dematerialize or put the guards to sleep or whatever it might be. And Maybe when others of us are just sleeping in our bunks, you know, he can astral travel and do other things. So his spirit can be quite free. But even that is showing us how to get out of the prison. And the rest of us just have to live there because we have a karmic sentence that has to run. But we're all wearing the same uniform and eating the same food. I mean, is that helpful? I, I found that very helpful. That was a, the clearest picture I've ever been able to get. The other one is... If you think the other picture is you think of a, a big stone wall and this is, this is spiritual freedom and this is the material world. And, you know, we're kind of like our karma picks us up and throws us over the wall. And then there's this huge wall that, that is, is our blindness of higher realms. And we're just in this world here. We don't, we don't know there's a wall and we don't know that the whole point is to go back over it or tunnel through it. So as soon as we're thrown over the wall, just like little babies, you know, we, well, as little babies, we start reaching for all the shiny stuff, grabbing the fingers of our parents and the whole thing like this. And we, we just essentially turn our backs to the wall and look at all the shiny stuff and start running after it. That's what we do. And so we spend all our time running away from, from the exit. The avatar is thrown over the wall he kind of looks around, he turns back to the wall and he begins to tunnel through it because he gets that this is why he's here. And so again, it's the same. He's, he still is on the other side of it and he still has to get back through it, but he gets that that's why we're here. He's, look, he's facing the right direction and he's doing the right things. You know, we're facing the wrong direction and we're doing the wrong things because we're compelled by our karma to do that. And because he's not compelled, he can see it for what it is. And I mean that, that and I, I started this evening talking about clarity of mind and actually really being able to think things through 
we have difficulty thinking things through because the likes and dislikes of the heart push our reasoning in certain directions. This is how we want it to be, so reason supports feeling, and this is how it is. Swamiji's brilliant mind, I mean, un- extraordinarily clear and, and incisive understanding of anything, I realized, was because of the stillness of his heart. He was not compelled by his likes and dislikes. He was completely fearless. If it was true, it was true. Simple as that. And he just didn't have all this necessity to reason things around to what he wanted them to be. After we got really engaged in the litigation with SRF, I mean, litigation with SRF, the litigation against us from SRF, it sounds like something we all did together, (laughs) you know, which we did do it all together, but not not by choice. Um, uh, Weirdly, because... A lot of people, you know, the, the, the lines of loyalty and clarity on that were not clear-cut. Because Swami did things that provoked, he, kept, he pushed the issue. I write about this in my book as best I can, so we'll see. Um, I mean, how that helps people to understand it. Uh, so, it, there was an element of Swamiji, by changing our name to the Ananda Church of Self-Realization, that you might say he provoked it. <laughs> which, which he did because he, he felt that the, it all needed to be resolved and he, he felt also that if we weren't going to reconcile then he wasn't going to hold back that was basically it's just like if they're not going to respect us as what we are then why am I trying to please them I'm just going to do what I know to be right which is we are a church of self-realization and we will call ourselves such and that was the final straw that caused them to file a lawsuit and uh now let me just go back to where what oh, where I was. Oh yes, but there was a lot of um, internal adjusting among some people, and most most of us at Ananda had very little experience with SRF and almost no experience with Diamata. The way we knew about SRF and the way we knew about Diamata, who was the, the protagonist against us in this thing. Um, was from Swami's writing about her in the path because he wrote about her with such respect and in such glowing terms that I knew for a fact he's, because I have this this weird memory I mean I just have this memory I like I know things I I don't forget so I'm I'm with people and I mean I know because I've lived with them for the last 15 years I know exactly how many experiences they've had with SRF and how little they know about Diamata. I know. And I know that the reason they think she's such a fine devotee is because Swamiji told them that she was. You know, because I, I just keep track. It's, it's a blessing and a curse. I can just keep track. When we used to do the India pilgrimages, I'm going to digress for a minute and come back. Um, I would always remember all our experiences and I would remember where we went. I mean, not, I don't have a photographic memory, but I have a good memory. I would remember where we went, what worked, what was positive. Um, David lives in the moment and we just, you know, he'd have experiences and he just doesn't store things up. It gives him a great, great deal of mental freedom. I, I, my, the curse of having a memory like mine is that it binds me to what I remember. And so he has much more mental freedom because he doesn't store it. He doesn't keep a file cabinet of everything that ever happened. Um, Durga and Vidura, God bless them, the, 
everything goes positive in their memory. They're just such loving and positive people that whatever it is, they just turn it into something really positive. So we would plan the next trip and, and they would suggest we could go to this shrine or to that shrine. And, and they would remember that we had a wonderful time there. And I would remember <laughs> that it was horrible. <laughs> you know? Yeah, the, yeah, there were monkeys and we, we felt no inspiration and the pujari was terrible and the guide was like this and it took us three days of horrible driving to get there. Why would we go again? And they, Dirk and Vitor would kind of go, oh yeah, you know, kind of like, and then they would say, oh, but you remember so-and-so was so sweet. And I mean, I, mean, I learned a tremendous amount from, from all of them about, oh, my way is arbitrary. It's not like, okay, so back to this SRF thing. So I, I, would keep, I just would keep track of cause and effect. So I said to Swami, sir, you know, you knew that there was another side to this woman's character. Yes, you know, all of this is true, but you knew that there was another side which we had to live through in the lawsuit. And I said, and in a sense, you knew that you were setting yourself up. Because, I mean, he did. You knew you were setting yourself up. And he said, yes, but that was also true. And that's how I experienced her. It was just like that. Like, that was the truth, and so I told it. And he was, he was very astute. He was perfectly aware of what, what I mean, I, whether he actually had a, 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 an actual vision of the literal future or not. More likely with him, he just intuitively knows, but he does dharma in the moment. It was the, it was the truth, it was what happened, and that, I was just going to write it. There was not, that was the true story. And I, I thought to myself, you know what, courage. Just no, no protection. No, nothing, just... If it's true, it's true. And in another context, another, this was also SRF-related. He, he wrote this long paper in, in some way explaining our position in relation to SRF, which he wrote many long papers, explaining why he felt, as a direct disciple, he had a right to interpret his master's teachings as he felt inspired to do so. And that why he was not subject to another direct disciple's different interpretation. Because that's really all that was going on ever. One direct disciple had one interpretation. He as a direct disciple had another. He said, this is absolutely the Indian tradition. It's completely orthodox. Nobody is wrong. We just both have a right. I mean, among other things. And then he would be specific in his way. He never said, it's this way because it should be this way. He said, it's this way because these are the facts. These are the conclusions I've drawn from the facts. These are the possible interpretations. This is the one that I've taken. This one, I mean, that's why his writings, he would, you know, would be 15 pages because he would never use authority. He would use reason. Um, but he'd made some long paper like that. And then right in the middle of it, he threw in this totally contradictory um, expression of he quoted master in some context that completely undermined his whole argument. And, and he, when he set out, sent the draft out, I said, sir, you know, like, right here, everything falls apart. You've just said something that completely goes the other way. And Swami said, well, Master also said that. He said, yeah, he said, that, that, that's true. <laughs> but Master also said it. He finally found a way, and the details of it are not clear in my mind at the moment, but he found a way 
either I mean, he might he found a way to incorporate it that wasn't so stark. You know, he he balanced it with extra words, but he said, "Yeah, that's it." You know, so he was never trying to prove himself right, but he was he was just trying to explain how he sees it. It doesn't need anyone to defend it. It just stands. But I, I so remember both of those were very vivid examples. I mean, what courage that takes. That's how to live in the prison. Because if you're true to Dharma, then eventually you don't have to live in the prison anymore. You, you, don't, get, you don't get out of the prison by gaming the system and finding a way to sneak out. You have to actually get out by just having the courage to face whatever it is. Yeah, it's fascinating, isn't it? That's why the examples, and the more we know about Master's life, the better too, because then we can think. You know, so Master's life was not, well, there was, some, there was some drama in it, but it wasn't dramatic like Jesus. With Jesus, you, you, know, you always are having to look at this, this in, you know, extraordinarily dramatic conflict. Master's conflict was more internal. I mean, he, he wasn't crucified. He died at the Biltmore Hotel. It was like, you know, it's very different. But Jesus had to go through all of that. So how could an avatar be hated to the extent that he was murdered like that? Executed. Yeah. Makes you wonder whether there's some other way you can get liberated. (laughs) Without having to go through it. Here then is the fourth and last stage. Mm, Really? Yeah. I mean, I'm honest enough to say... Wow, do we all have to go through that? Who knows? Swami did say, no, no, your life won't look like mine. You know, he, his, he was a special case. There's a clue. Yeah, there's a clue. But that doesn't mean that we won't have to, as Sister Gyanamata said, give up everything. Even those, that, the, even those things that are mine by right that harm no one. Because if there's any other desire in the heart, you can't be absolutely still. Fabulous. All right. God bless you. (laughs) So I, I read, let me see what I read. I read 292 and 293, and that's it.